This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Patrick Runnels. Dr. Runnels is a fasting role as the Chief Medical Officer, I believe, of Population Health at University Hospitals. University Hospitals, University Health System is, is one of the great health systems in the country, uh, leader in NIH, NIH funding, uh, has 22 hospitals, a magnificent reputation. I think I got the numbers right. Great system. Uh, Dr. Runnels, can you take a moment Tell us about yourself and about university hospitals. Then we'll talk about the role of Chief Medical Officer of Population Health and a lot more. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Scott. Uh, happy to do so. Uh, I am a psychiatrist by background, actually, um, and currently serving uh, in the role of Vice Chair of Psychiatry as well as the Chief Medical Officer of Population Health. Um, actually came about this in an unusual way. Uh, spent the first 10 years of my career actually doing work primarily geared at individuals who are homeless or severely mentally ill. Um, and in working in that environment, uh, very quickly uh, discovered all the ways in which the environment was broken and all the transformation that was needed. Uh, but when you work in an environment that uh, serves individuals who are under-resourced and when the environment is under-resourced, you get pretty good at starting to think from a population level, how do we get the best possible uh, set of outcomes and interventions to this population? Uh, in the easiest, in the most efficient and easiest way possible. So got very practiced at that work and about five or six years ago, decided to make a shift and jumped back over to the uh, hospital side and uh, very quickly actually uh, connected with the population health uh, team at University Hospitals at that time was uh, kind of just building up its momentum around the work we're doing um, and, and got involved in doing that work and has kind of just steadily progressed into the role I'm at right now. And uh, it's been really uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, University Hospitals has had an ACO uh, and kind of a population health program for more than 10 years now. Um, but originally, like many systems, it was a pretty small part of what we did. Uh, so um, it wasn't a major focus of what was going on. Uh, it was starting about five years, six years ago now that the hospital decided to invest pretty significantly. And uh, it was around that time that they ended up actually enrolling uh, about 600,000 patients in different uh, versions of value-based contracts. So we have about 600,000 folks that represent about half the people we see every year who, for whom we're responsible for uh, their outcomes uh, and their costs, uh, not just providing high-quality services. And uh, that means it's pretty front and center with everything we do. And so at University Hospitals, this concept of how do we shift to providing value has been very front and center because it encompasses you know, so much of the work we're providing. Fantastic. And talk a little bit about being a psychiatrist and a chief medical officer. That, that, that seems less often the case in sort of the, the general healthcare world, the nine psychiatry-driven healthcare or behavioral health-driven world, but, but makes a ton of sense. But talk about that. I mean, you must find that that's a little unusual that the psychiat somebody with a psychiatrist's background is chief medical officer. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that before. There are two things that kind of j jump to mind when you ask that question. The first is people do see me as a little less traditional, uh, particularly the background that I described earlier. Um, and at the same time, what's been kind of more gratifying in a certain sense is population health is really about transformation. It's really about changing how systems work and having them think differently and more efficiently. Um, and in that regard, behavior is real central to how you get people to do things differently. Um, while I initially kind of jumped into this work feeling a little bit on the outside, um, what I discovered was that as a psychiatrist, half of what I do 
is uh, managing disease, right? It's managing mental health disease. But the other half of what I do is figuring out how to work with people to get them to move or to change, whether or not that's an addictive disorder and I need to work with them to stop uh, using substances or engage in treatment or uh, a mental health issue that requires them to think differently about how they're approaching their lives. Um, so much of what we do is in that realm and you learn a lot of communication skills and a lot of approaches and a lot of styles that kind of uh, move you in that direction. It, it turns out I'm applying all of those uh, in, in the current role I have. You know, University Hospitals has done very well in our uh, Medicare Shared Savings Plan over the last, uh, you know, two years. Uh, we've, you know, for the uh, for approximately 50,000 patients we have, we've uh, gone from 75% on the quality metrics to 100%. Uh, we have uh, saved something like $45 million right around there over a two-year period, um, and that's been awesome. Um, but population, and, and when you think about population health, we think about this idea that the job is to hit quality metrics and make sure you hit your shared savings goal, uh, and that's kind of a minor way of, of getting at it. What's been different at university hospitals is our recognition that to hit uh, and, and succeed in that world you have to go about really changing how people focus on the work. And at every level, whether that's primary care or uh, surgery or psychiatry, it means getting people to change things that have worked for them as professionals for sometimes decades and get them to think anew about how they might approach the work. And not only get them to think anew and kind of give up the things they're used to, but also take on the risk of doing things in a way that may feel like it's going to make their life tougher. You know, when we dug into this idea of uh, consultation, so when primary care is some uh, uh, consultations to specialists, um, there's a raft of literature that um, talks about how uh, primary care has a very bad experience, and the specialists also have a bad experience. Communication is bad. The, uh, you know, uh, the wait times can be long. There's uh, very little, there's a lot in, in terms of uncertainty about who and when and where people uh, will, will go. And the result is a bad experience for everybody. And frankly, a lot of stuff uh, falls that we drop. So when we met with specialists in different specialties in our, in our system, we, we, you know, and we started talking about potentially having a more transparent and easier uh, streamlined uh, access to consultation, what we heard back was everyone very afraid that, but if we do that, here's all the problems we'll have. We'll get people in our schedules that are no good, that, that they're not, that mean that they're not cases that are very uh, using the, 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 uh, my skills the most effectively, or we'll get too many cases, or it'll create chaos, or there's competition between different parts of the system. And uh, so going and thinking about that as we streamline that process, that required a lot of really deep behavioral work and culture change that it turned out were really suited to the background I have. I would totally agree with you that it completely makes a ton of sense, even though it's not the, the norm. It totally yeah. makes a lot of sense. Could not agree more. Take a moment with us. Talk about the shortage of behavioral health specialists in our country, psychiatrists, psychologists, Give us a sense of what that looks like and, and what your sense of this, because it's often talked about how much of a shortage there is a psychiatrist, for example, but, but give us a better sense of that. because I, I could use some education on it, as I'm sure our audience can, to understand where that sits. Yeah, so two things to kind of think about with regard to that. The first is psychiatry has known for decades that we don't have enough people to do the work and meet the demand uh, that, that, that we have in front of us. And that's not just psychiatrists, that's true of therapists and psychologists and counselors of all stripes. Um, we, we just don't have the workforce to meet the demand. But 
I would say until the last five years, health systems were broadly kind of accepted the idea that this was not going to be a major focus of the work they did. Um, psychiatry was, you know, in mental health and behavioral health in general, uh, were thought of as things that um, needed to happen outside major health systems. They were incredibly siloed. Uh, you, you know, this is represented by the state hospital system and psychiatry or the incredibly fragmented addictions treatment world that we have pretty much everywhere in the country. So five years ago, um, that changed. As value-based care kind of hit the scene and everyone started running the numbers, what became very clear was that behavioral health you know, and, and mental illness was intimately tied to outcomes and value. Um, we did our own internal numbers. And when we looked up nearly any chronic disease, um, but the, the two that jump out were chronic kidney disease and, and, and congestive heart failure, when we looked those up and just added a mental health diagnosis in, it doubled the cost. Meaning the, the, the amount of uh, uh, you know the, the amount of uh, money spent on individuals doubled, um, and that's really significant. And I think a lot of systems recognize that. So we started paying more attention to behavioral health, and we started hiring more people, and it kind of exacerbated the shortage that we already had. Just taking the uh, psychiatrist um, about three or four years ago, I was part of a report that kind of looked at the shortage as it was. We were, at that time, we saw that we had about a 15,000 psychiatrist shortage. Um, there's about 45,000 psychiatrists in the country, so that represents, you know, uh, about a third. We were, we were about 33% lower than we needed to be. Um, we predicted, however, that that shortage would grow, and, in, and indeed it did, and COVID actually accelerated that because psychiatry as a profession had an average age of 56, and that was five years ago, and one-third of psychiatrists at that time were within five years of retirement age many were over the retirement age. That wave of retirements hit starting about a year and a half ago, um, and COVID seems to accelerate that. And so the shortage that used to be 15,000 look like it's approaching closer to 25,000 as of today. Um, we may be in the ballpark of having only half the psychiatrists we need to meet the demand that we have. That's what we're up against. When you look at that and you think about that, you think about how much we need to address behavioral health issues and we need to think differently about things. Um, that leads you to go, okay, so we got to do the work really, really differently now. Um, and so what you're seeing an explosion of, and psychiatry may be ahead of many other fields in this, in this way, is thinking differently about the role of the physician in the work as it's applied. We've traditionally looked at physicians as being central to everything. So if you have a patient or you have a procedure, the physician's got to be in the middle. And what we have tried over the last decade in psychiatry to do with some good success is figure out how the role of psychiatrists can shift to more of a professional consultant role. Um, this is illustrated heavily by something called the collaborative care model, which seeks to use social workers to help assist primary care providers while having a psychiatrist oversee and kind of provide input as needed. But we are looking at this throughout our system. We've really dug into this to kind of address that gap. And, and there's really no way around it. I mean, we certainly see it in our community where if you have somebody talk to a psychiatrist, they have really sort of narrowed their role to sort of really exactly as you're talking about in collaboration with a social worker or a psychologist, some other kind of behavioral health uh, uh, person, and really narrowed their role to they prescribe and do certain things like diagnose and then really do sort of leverage themselves as well as they can. And is that where we have to go with this? Is that sort of the long term of psychiatrists? Because I mean, the, the number that I what, what's the total number of psychiatrists is maybe two hundred thousand in the country. Is that the right number? Forty five thousand psychiatrists in the country. 
Gotcha. And that number's down how much, did you say? We we have that number's come down a little. Um, I, I don't think we have the exact numbers because it's all happened recently, but I think a lot of people estimate we've probably lost five to 7,000 psychiatrists uh, from to retirement in the last two years. More importantly, though, demand spiked. So the shortage we have, the delta from what we have to what we need, is probably around 25 to 30,000 psychiatrists. That's what we don't have. Got it. Thank you very, very much. It's about 45,000 in the country. We're short. Give me that number again. How many were short? We're probably short around 25 to 30,000 right now. Right. We're, we're short almost half the number or something like that. Yep. I mean, just an insurmountable yep. number. I mean, what's yep. happened is there are countries in the world, India is the primest example, where they have so many people compared to the amount of care providers they had that they've had to move towards, in, in their case, heavy, heavily preventive medicine uh, as yep. much as they can, just, just given the complete disproportion of people to doctors and professionals. The alternative, I guess, to just moving to a total preventive care model, which doesn't necessarily work in the behavioral health area, I'm sure there are parts of it work, is really as much as possible a leverage model where there's so many people that could do pieces of it, and then there's a piece the psychiatrist alone can do. That's right. Yeah. So, we're, you know, uh, you know and, and the thing we have to be careful of is most of the rest of the healthcare workforce has never had to deal with these issues much at all or hasn't formally been expected to. Now, you'll talk to primary care providers who will tell you when they're in rural areas, they've been dealing with this stuff for years. And I've got colleagues who uh, work in, uh, who, who kind of moved to rural areas and found primary care practices that were doing uh, you know, long-acting uh, injectable medications for schizophrenia because there just wasn't anybody around to do that work. But the, you know, especially with the advent of telehealth, the opportunity for us to distribute or redistribute where my time is devoted and to whom I devote my time is vast. And we're in the beginning of this kind of what I would call a revolution in how we deliver care for psychiatry um, and thinking about how we do that. And at the same time, and this is really important, we can't just burden someone else with all the work. Primary care doctors themselves, for instance, are really struggling with all the quality metrics hitting them. And everybody wants them to do one extra thing. And so we're discovering that balance is tricky, right? So if we want to do- Take a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And this, on the primary care side, there's also this concept that, and this has gone back and forth over the years. At one time, primary care physicians got quite comfortable prescribing different kind of behavioral health prescriptions and pharmaceuticals. And then, of course, as more studies are done of some of the long-term effects, the side effects, and so forth, that community has rightfully at times gotten far more cautious about prescribing. I mean, in, in what, you, what you mentioned also is the primary care physicians would say, well, we're as busy as a psychiatrist. Don't put all the burden on us. Yeah. Any thoughts on a couple of those issues? I mean, you already mentioned that on the burden issue, but what about the, the prescribing issue? It seems like that's gone back and forth on a whole number of pharmaceuticals as well. Yeah, remember, we've never played in a sandbox together before, right? Psychiatry and primary care, and this is, you know, there's, there's areas where this is, you know, this is not universally true, but it's, it's pretty close to true, um, have rarely had the ability to interact. There's rarely a health system that's really kind of pushed forward and said, what if you interacted really, really deeply and were intertwined and we reworked workflows so that you could interact the right way? What, you find, what we have found in our system, and there are studies to back this up in other systems, is that when you have robust uh, administratively leadership-supported uh, integration, when you, when you do that well, primary care providers feel supported 
and uh, uh, do two things. They get less concerned about um, risk, and they also adhere to evidence-based practices in a much more robust way. You referenced the idea of some of the control prescriptions. Back in the 80s and 90s, Xanax came out. Everyone said there was low risk, so primary care docs followed that lead. And you know, there's a lot of Xanax that kind of got out in the world that turned out created a lot of problems. Then uh, five or six years ago, everyone got in trouble for this, so then they stopped, uh, they stopped doing that. And what we found is that you, you have to deliberately kind of lean into that, talk about it. But if you're around, if you, the psychiatrist, are around to support and help people understand that if they get into trouble situations, we got your back, we can see people, we can do short-term consultations, they get comfortable really quickly once you, just, once you essentially establish trust. That's the key to all this. And when you do that well, the system will move. Um, but you have to be really deliberate about it. Fascinating. Dr. Rollins, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We'll also ask Chanel to release us into the Becker's Behavioral Healthcare Podcast as well. Just a fascinating discussion about both population health and about the looming issues in the changing world of behavioral health as well. Thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, thrilled to be here and uh, look forward to uh, future conversations.